This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You must Welcome to You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. This is another episode of our ongoing series, Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. When last we left Polly Platt, she and her husband Peter Bogdanovich had just collaborated on his feature directorial debut, Targets, which Polly had hoped would lead to a chance to direct a bigger and better feature. It did. And it was on the set of that next feature that, in some sense, Polly's world fell apart. Her husband began the affair that would ultimately lead to the end of their marriage. But even while working through incredible emotional chaos and trauma, and working intimately with the young woman whose relationship with Polly's husband became an open secret, that movie also gave Polly a chance to showcase her own talents— and to define the aesthetic of one of the most iconic-looking movies of the 1970s. In the moment, for Polly Platt, the last picture show felt like the end. But as we'll see over the course of this series, in terms of her career, it was also a beginning. Today we will discuss how the last picture show came to be, the role Polly played in crafting its look and feel, and the incredible story of the love triangle that took place just barely off-camera, which informed the movie, set into motion one of the defining celebrity narratives of the era, and left one woman, Polly Platt, bereft and totally unsure of her life and career. Join us, won't you, for part three of Polly Platt, The Invisible Woman. In 1969, Peter, Polly, and their nearly two-year-old daughter, Antonia, decamped for Rome. Bogdanovich had been hired to develop a film about the Mexican Revolution to be produced by Sergio Leone. Leone had already directed three spaghetti westerns starring Clint Eastwood, as well as Once Upon a Time in the West. It all felt like a huge break for the couple. It was almost like a dream come true. First-class tickets to Rome, living in a wonderful hotel at the top of the Spanish steps. No laundry to do, no meals to shop for and fix. Wonderful Italian food, nothing to do but be creative. 
I was to design the film, Peter to direct it, and I busied myself with research about the period, which was the early 1900s. Peter went to work on the screenplay with Sergio Leone, who could speak no English, so we had to have an interpreter. The screenwriter, who was also to be part of the collaboration, became a longtime friend. Luciano Vincenzoni was truly a colorful Italian and took us to every great restaurant in Rome. Not to mention, he got Peter laid by a sexy Italian woman. I was to find out about that later. At this point, I was blessedly ignorant. During this sojourn in Rome, Polly would establish a friendship that would prove crucially important in her life with and without Peter, a friendship which continues to have reverberations on film history to this day. Also staying in Rome in 1969 were Orson Welles and his mistress, Oya Kodar. Peter had already spent time with Welles, but now Polly was pulled into Orson's force field of genius and charisma, delighting as the man who made Citizen Kane told stories about Fellini at restaurants Orson had been to with Fellini. Polly eventually realized that Oya was lonely and that Orson was happy to have people closer to her age around to entertain her. Peter's wife and Orson's mistress bonded right away. But the collaboration between Bogdanovich and Leone swiftly went south. Polly convinced Peter that they should cut their losses and leave Rome. Sergio Leone would end up directing Duck You Sucker himself. Meanwhile, I discovered that while in Italy, I had gotten pregnant again with our second child. She was due in August of 1970. Peter and I were delirious with happiness. Or at least, I thought so. Back in the States, the couple had no work on the docket, and a second baby on the way. Their friend Henry Jaglom got them a meeting with Bert Schneider, the son of Abraham Schneider, whose family had run Columbia Pictures for decades. Bert had launched a radically-minded film label called BBS. Bert was one of the Bs in BBS. The other was Bob Rafelson, a writer and TV producer from New York who had invented the monkeys, had cashed in as the impresario of their TV show, and had cut his teeth as a director with the monkeys' movie, Head. Like Peter, Bob was married to a talented woman, Toby Carr Rafelson, who would serve as Rafelson's production designer on three films, beginning with Five Easy Pieces. Together with third partner Steve Blauner, Rafelson and Schneider had started BBS as a way to help emerging filmmakers make low-budget films that would be guaranteed a mainstream release through Schneider's dad's studio, Columbia. BBS had been behind the biggest unexpected hit of the summer of 1969, Easy Rider. It was Rafelson who saw targets and said to Schneider, I just saw a movie that sucks, but the guy who made it knows how to make movies. Get him in here. So Schneider and his wife, Judy, invited Peter and Polly over for dinner. Bert asked Peter what he wanted to direct next, and Peter didn't really have an answer. But I piped up about this great book, The Last Picture Show, and Bert showed some interest. He asked Peter if he would send him a copy of it, and Peter answered back, You can go out and buy it at any bookstore. 
Peter's arrogance took my breath away. The proper response was for Peter to say he would bring over or messenger Bert a copy of the book tomorrow. Even I knew that as green as I was. So we drove home and I berated Peter about his arrogance, and he let it all slide off his back. Peter may have been less than eager to deliver the book into Schneider's hands, because, according to Polly, Peter himself hadn't yet read it. And when Peter did finally read the novel by Larry McMurtry, he told me he was pretty upset about it. He had thought from the title that it was about movies somehow and was disappointed that it was just about a small town in Texas. He said he didn't know anything about people in a small town in Texas. I told him he would feel a lot better about it if he would just remember all the stories he had told me about how he could never get any of the pretty girls when he was in high school in New York City. And this was just the same story, only in a small town. He could relate to it very well, I thought. He listened to me about that. Schneider read the book and told Peter that if he could write some nudity into the script, BBS would finance the film up to a million-dollar budget and distribute it through Columbia. Though there would be virtually no money up front, Peter would retain 21% of the film's net, meaning that if it was a hit, he stood to cash in. Polly would not be credited as a producer on The Last Picture Show, but she had pitched the material to the studio exec and sold him on it. She had pitched it to the film's eventual co-writer and director, her husband, and figured out the right words to say to obliterate his misgivings. Larry McMurtry wrote the novel of The Last Picture Show, collaborated with Peter and Polly on its screenplay, and took the couple on a tour of real locations from his life when they were looking for places to shoot the movie. McMurtry remained involved in both Peter and Polly's lives for years afterward, and both halves of the couple would separately work on later adaptations of his many novels. I asked McMurtry what he observed of Polly and Peter's relationship when they were going into filming, and this is what he responded. Please note this is not Larry McMurtry's voice. The author was only able to answer questions via email, so I cast actor Bill Sage to read his words. Polly was very important to Peter both before and during the filming of The Last Picture Show. Polly read the novel and gave it to Peter. I did not find him responsive to what it actually was, and I don't think he would have ever found it himself. Polly was much more likely to do an American story with American characters. She had a singular instinct about who to go after for the roles, too. In addition to doing all of the things in the last picture show that a producer would do, Polly also designed the look of the film from the ground up. She chose locations, designed and helped build sets, designed and found costumes, and, in violation of union rules, did the hair and makeup of the stars herself, because there was no budget to hire hair and makeup people. It was Polly who took color location photos, which helped to convince Bogdanovich that the movie must be filmed in black and white, even though the industry had, by 1970, almost fully shifted to color. It was Polly who decided that the guiding look of the movie should be realistic rather than stylized. It was Polly who decided to avoid generic 1950s totems 
and make the film look timeless. When you watch the last picture show today, most of the characters look and feel modern. And when one doesn't, such as the lonely, neglected football coach's wife played by Cloris Leachman, that tells us something about her character, too. I wanted to make a movie where the actors looked like real people. I had the idea that the teenage girl's hair would be in pin curls when she was putting on cold cream to take off her makeup during the scene with her mother. The actors in all the thousands of movies I had seen looked picture perfect. They even had on makeup and their hair was combed when they woke up from a night's sleep. I wanted people to look real in this movie, and I was in a position to do that. As she had on the John Ford documentary, part of Polly's job in the lead-up to The Last Picture Show was to bolster Peter's confidence as men who he respected tried to shake it. Orson Welles gave Peter and Polly encouragement to shoot in black and white, but that was the only thing involving Last Picture Show that Welles was encouraging about. Orson came to town for some kind of work and was staying at the Beverly Hills Hotel. When we went to see him, he asked us to stop and pick up a barrel of Kentucky Fried Chicken, which we did. We were surprised that a man of his gourmet tastes would like KFC, but he did. He ate the whole bucket. Orson had read the script for The Last Picture Show, and he was not fond of it at all. He told Peter that it was a dirty movie and that he shouldn't direct it. We sat in the living room of Orson's Beverly Hills Cottage as Orson beat up on Peter about the script. He told Peter that if the film were a success, the actors would get all the credit, and if it was a failure, that Peter would get all the blame. I sat there, pregnant, knowing that Orson was wrong, and that what he said would make a big impression on Peter, who worshipped Orson. I did not agree with Orson at all. I began to cry as he went on about the dirty script. Orson turned to Peter and pointed at me. Why is she crying? he asked. Why was Polly crying? The fact was, she was putting everything she had to give into the last picture show, which she saw as something akin to her own autobiography. Wells didn't understand that Peter's wife felt the movie was just as much hers as it was his, and couldn't understand that Polly was more emotionally attached to the material than her husband was. I knew that the movie was going to be good, and worried desperately that Peter would back out somehow just because of Orson's harsh words. We drove home afterwards, and I pointed out to Peter that John Ford would never direct or like the scripts that Howard Hawks directed. I also pointed out that two different, brilliant directors would never pick the same film to direct. That's what made them so different and special. Orson would never direct this film, but that didn't mean it was no good. Peter seemed mollified. As this story makes clear, no one was more committed to the last picture show than Polly, to the extent that she was worried that Peter might cancel the project based on Orson Welles' criticism. This will become significant later. When the question arises as to why the last picture show was not a movie Polly could easily walk away from... Be 
Time to Your Mind with guided meditations from the Meditation for Women podcast. Your mental health benefits from sleeping better, releasing anxiety, and gaining clarity, all of which are benefits of meditation. And since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, give yourself the gift of meditations. All you have to do is press play and close your eyes. Listen to Meditation for Women on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. There was another major element of the last picture show that was discovered, in part, by Polly. At least, according to Polly. It happened when she and Peter were in line at a San Fernando Valley supermarket. I picked up a copy of a magazine which had this girl on the cover, who was most charming but had a sort of sexual chip on her shoulder, as if to say, just try me, I dare you. I said to Peter... Doesn't she look like J.C.? It was Sybil Shepard. I was not there for Peter's first meeting with Sybil, which was in New York City. But he called to tell me that she was perfect for the part, and he cast her. According to Sybil's memory of her first meeting with Peter, she was struck with something like lust at first sight. She wrote that she walked into Bogdanovich's hotel room carrying a copy of War and Peace. And when Peter asked her what she was reading, she was so flummoxed by him that she answered, Dostoevsky. In 1983, Polly would tell a seminar at the American Film Institute that she had thought Sybil would be perfect for the part because of the, quote, American professional virgin 50s, 60s quality that she had. Sybil was not actually a virgin, professional or otherwise, And in real life, she was not coy about her sexuality. At age 20, she thought of herself as a liberated woman. Shortly after arriving in Archer City, Larry McMurtry's hometown, which would become the home base for the nine-week shoot, Sybil began a relationship with her co-star, Jeff Bridges. But a lot would happen over the next nine weeks. Peter and Polly's different duties during pre-production meant that they were rarely in the same place at the same time. Polly continued to work for her entire pregnancy, partially because this was an independent film and there was no one to fill in for her, and partially because she couldn't bear to give up control of her baby, her movie baby. Of course, while all this was happening, she was also expecting a baby baby. Alexandra Bogdanovich, called Sashi, was finally born in September 1970. Polly was, she wrote, ecstatic. She wasn't worried that she and her husband were spending so little time together. After all, she had just given birth to his child, and she was working her ass off on a film which she considered to be an equal collaboration. I went back to work almost immediately. The hardest part was winding myself up in sheets to stop my mother's milk from flowing, as I clearly was not going to be able to breastfeed Sashi. I lay in my bed, crying from the pain of my engorged breasts and this draconian method of stopping the milk. Peter did his best to comfort me, but I really was in agony for a few days. I was so poorly raised that it never occurred to me to call the obstetrician and ask for some pain pills or to ask if there was a better way to stop the milk from filling my breasts. 
But the last picture show had a life of its own, and I was committed to it. I loved my baby and my Antonia, but I loved my work, too. It was a terrible choice to have to make. I wanted so much to have a career in movies. So I had the hard decision to make as to what to do with my children during the months I was to be working on the picture. Peter's parents had moved from New York to Scottsdale, Arizona, and they agreed to take Polly and Peter's young daughters in while the parents were on set in Texas. And so, in the late summer of 1970, Polly left infant Sashi and three-year-old Antonia in Arizona while she and Peter went on location. By the time Polly would next see her children, her marriage would essentially be over. It's worth noting that there had been cracks in the relationship before this point. In an interview given in 1993, Polly recalled Peter's lack of reaction when Howard Hawks came to their house and said flower children should be shot as the moment when she, quote, stopped loving Peter. That would have been in 1968. And Jules Fisher says he was aware of Polly's frustrations with the marriage before Sybil Shepherd came into Polly's life. So she never complained to me earlier than the Sybil Shepherd, but it was clear that she was in a situation that wasn't Polly. And I could hear it from her, and she was stuck. She, I couldn't get out, she felt, and yet she really wanted other things. She wanted to do more. So she was losing her identity to some extent in this relationship. Yeah. Polly may have had mixed feelings about her marriage, but at that time in history, it would have been a really big deal for her to leave Peter over any of her grievances. And after Sashi was born and they went into production on the last picture show, for Polly, a separation would have been unthinkable. But then, Polly and Peter's equilibrium was thrown off. Frank Marshall was the location manager on The Last Picture Show. I remember thinking, God, this is how you want a marriage to be. You know, if you could find your partner that loved to do what you did 24-7, that was the ideal situation. Um, And they were like that, you know, obviously. I was the last to know on The Last Picture Show, by the way. Uh, about Sybil, I, we were in the Ramada Inn and they had the suite upstairs. And I remember in the middle of shooting one day, because also we showed dailies upstairs, and I was running up the stairs and Polly was coming down the stairs with all her clothes. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, don't you know? And I went, no, what? And she said, you know, Peter's having an affair with Sybil. And I, I, I was like stunned. Uh because, you know, they, they were an incredible match at that point. Shepard would later write that she and Bogdanovich didn't consummate their relationship until after shooting began, but that before that, it was evident to all on set that there was a quote-unquote force field between her and Peter. She wrote, Even Polly remarked on it. She said facetiously that Peter was always drawn to women with big breasts and small feet, neither of which she had. In an interview many years later, 
Polly said, I thought if I was a man and a beautiful girl like that was making a pass at me, I don't know what I would do. This sounds remarkably understanding and barely scratched the surface of the complex emotions she felt at the time it all happened, which she later wrote about at length. It was during rehearsals for the movie that I first knew for sure that my husband was falling really in love with the ingenue, Sybil. It's hard to say how I knew. I just knew. The way she would look at him, the way he looked at her, there was no doubt in my mind. What could I do about it, really? Make a scene? I was a professional and didn't want to make a scene. I didn't want to derail the movie, which I felt was mine as much as it was Peter's. Peter was still sleeping in my bed every night, so I knew that he wasn't in hers. But I felt ugly and old. I had just given birth to Sashi and wasn't much good in the sex department. For God's sake, I was still bleeding. I just pretended it wasn't happening, all of it. My thoughts were... The only drama is what goes on in front of the camera. I was so detached that I worked on Sybil's clothes just as hard as I worked on everything else, if not harder. And her costumes, I am very proud of. It was Sybil's job on this movie to embody a teenage sexual fantasy. And it was Polly's job to make sure the actress looked the part to the director's satisfaction. As Larry McMurtry recalled, Polly later told me that somewhere, somehow, she knew she was creating her own successor in Sybil. It was moving Peter further and further away from her. The wife of Last Picture Show producer Bob Rafelson, Toby Rafelson worked, like Polly, as the production designer of her husband's early movies. She, too, would have the experience of grooming a young actress to better serve her husband's purposes. One of the things that really impressed itself on me was the fact that she was, which is something that that everybody knows about, she was helping Peter make, make Sybil look good. And it's an intimate relationship when you're you know, working on somebody up close, whether it's their makeup or their hair or or costuming them or whatever. And that Sybil evidently was already, that Peter had already either hit on Sybil or Sybil had hit on Peter, I don't know which. You know, Polly, Polly had some toughness in her. And Peter was probably needing some soft, pliable, adoring, kind of innocent, younger, you know, it's it's the classic thing. Uh, he could use Polly. He needed her for his work. She probably helped take him in many ways that we'll never know to where he was. But that didn't mean that the romance of their relationship was going to last. And and men, I don't know, there's no point in even going into it. It's obvious. But it was just ironic Because I sort of had the same kinds of experiences, you know, and I would be working on Bob's pictures with an actress and Bob would be hitting on them or having a a glancing affair or whatever with them. One day, Polly was doing Sybil's hair and makeup, and the 20-year-old let the older woman know 
just how aware she was of Polly's influence over Peter. People are saying you direct, Sibyl said, because he sits with you and you draw something on his script. You tell him what the shots will be. This was an oversimplification of Peter and Polly's collaborative dynamic, but the observation still gave Polly chills. Later, she would say, "I knew this was fatal. Poor Peter. He was infatuated with Sybil. Spent his evenings with her, telling me that he was helping her with her scenes. I knew better. I lay alone in our bed at night and waited, unable to sleep." until he came back to our motel room. The night I knew he was in love with her for sure was an evening after dailies, when Peter walked into our motel room with a small paper bag in his hand. I asked him what he had in that little paper bag. He blushed and told me they were pecan patties for Sybil. She loves them. I knew right then and there that they had slept together. There wasn't a damn thing I could think of to do, except to leave go home to California to what my empty house with a brand new baby and a two and a half year old and no husband leave the film I'd worked so hard on never not ever I settled in for the duration it was hard practically impossible the shooting went on every day I continued to drive to the set with Peter and together we would work out how he would shoot the scenes I would draw a floor plan of the room or the restaurant or the town square so he could see the way to shoot everything from one direction before we turned around and shot in the other. This saved a lot of time in shooting. Ultimately, I realized I had better do something about my husband sleeping with the ingenue. I finally confronted him about Sybil. I said to him, "It's either her or me." And he was in bed, his shoulders hunched in disgust. and he said in a dull lifeless voice i pick you i said that is not the way i want to be picked one night not long after that peter came into my room in our suite i had taken the second bedroom so that i would not be in our bed when peter came back from sibyl every night peter was crying as he crawled into my bed he told me that he had gotten a call from his mother who told him that his father had had a stroke was in the hospital in Scottsdale and was in a coma. This would be awful news no matter what. But coming on top of the affair, I remember thinking, if Borislav dies, there goes our marriage. Borislav was the only person who could convince Peter, I thought, that I was his wife and the mother of his children and that he had to treat me with respect and love. Maybe that sounds far-fetched. But Borislav was a European gentleman, and I knew that in Europe men often took on mistresses, but they were decent to their wives and children. I told him that if he didn't go right then, missing a day of shooting, his father, if he survived, would never forgive Peter for not going. Peter went to Scottsdale for one day, but Borislav succumbed a few days later. I grieved for him alone. It was Thanksgiving time. Peter flew back for the funeral. I just couldn't go and face my children and mother-in-law. What would I say to her? I couldn't add to her burden by telling her about Peter's affair. I also didn't want to see my children. A terrible mistake, I realize now. I just didn't want to be reminded of everything that I was about to lose 
my family with Peter. My mother-in-law, whom I adored, really found it hard to forgive me for not coming back, but I simply did not have the strength. It was a terrible mess. I tried calling several times, but could not get through. This was in the days when you had to go through the motel operator for long-distance calls. The operator, after I had tried several times to get through and the line was always busy, asked me if I wanted to break into Miss Shepard's telephone call to Peter. I was stunned. Peter was talking to Sybil and not to me. I couldn't even call Peter or speak to my own mother-in-law. I was devastated. I knew it was over between Peter and myself. I know it sounds odd that I took so long to realize it, but it took Borislav's death and Peter's turning to Sybil at that time for me to know for sure that my marriage was over. I moved out of our suite. I left most of my clothes and packed a small suitcase and got a room as far away as I could from Peter's rooms. I kept on working. I've wondered about my behavior many times since then. I didn't know what I was in for, letting go of Peter that easily. I didn't think about the children, and Christmas, Thanksgiving, the sharing of my children with Sybil at Peter's Bel Air mansion, and later the Playboy bunnies who would be running around Peter's house, the eventual murder of his beloved girlfriend, Playboy Bunny of the Year, Dorothy Stratton, and its effect on my children. Not to mention my own slow descent into drinking until it became alcoholic. Of course I didn't know the agony to come. Whoever does. Though Polly had moved out of Peter's hotel room, she didn't intend to give up her husband without a fight. And she certainly wasn't going to give up an inch of her involvement in the movie. This meant that Polly and Peter were still working together all day, every day, often to better enhance the on-screen sexual allure and vulnerability of the other woman in their lives. And Polly and Peter talked about Sybil constantly. Peter and I would take long walks while waiting for the lighting and set up for the next scene. We would talk and argue about Sybil and the affair. I kept saying to him that I was his wife and the mother of his children, and he had to show me some respect. I hissed at him. What are you going to do? Take her to talk to Orson Welles? I helplessly reminded him that he was a well-educated, cultured man, how many books he had read from Tolstoy to Faulkner. I remember thinking of the great Arthur Miller and his ill-fated passion for Marilyn Monroe. I used to make jokes. The thing that bothered Sybil most was when Peter told her I referred to her as Miss Rheingold. We got nowhere. I was driving Peter back to the motel from Archer City after the day's shooting. We were talking about his relationship with Sybil. How could he make such a rookie move? Peter tried to explain to me why. He said at 30 years of age, I feel old. Sybil makes me feel young again. I'm not sure I want a wife and children anymore. I felt murdered, invisible. But I wasn't going to stay that way. I was so enraged at that remark that I turned the rental car off the paved highway at high speed and drove it out into a plowed field. I'll kill us both, I screamed as we bumped over the rutted field. 
but all that happened was that the car lurched crazily over the furrows in the soil, and the bumping caused the hood to fly up so I couldn't see to drive us over a cliff or something. We came to a humiliating stop in the middle of this plowed field, dust rising around the disabled car. It was so pathetic that we both laughed. Finally, there seemed to be a tacit agreement to table it until after the movie was finished shooting. Peter clearly felt badly about my stoic, grim forward motion. He said to me once, Why don't you just go home? Well, I wasn't going to go home. I had found the book that we were making into a movie. I had suggested it to Peter. As I watched the dailies, I became increasingly sure that it would be a very good movie, and I was unwilling to relinquish my part in it, as well as finding the locations, designing the sets, the costumes, and doing the hair and makeup. It was as much mine as it was Peter's, and I was not going home. And that meant no scenes about Sybil on set. Have to be professional, I said to myself. So I conducted myself with absolute decorum. I combed Sybil's hair the same as I did Ben Johnson's. But as I retreated, Peter grew bolder. There were no restaurants near where we were shooting, so everybody in the cast and crew had to eat in the motel dining room. I knew Peter was eating with Sybil in her motel room every night, and I didn't want the crew to see me eating alone. I didn't want them feeling sorry for me. So I smoked a joint and got in our company car and drove off to the only other restaurant in town. I went in and ordered a steak. I was trying not to think, and the marijuana wasn't really a very good idea, I realized. Anyway, I was sitting there, facing the entrance to the restaurant, when to my horror, I saw Peter and Sybil enter, he laughing with his arm around her waist. They were walking in my direction in the dark restaurant. I slowly slid my ass down on my chair and disappeared under the red tablecloth-covered table and hid from them. From my vantage point under the table, I could see their feet going by, Sybil wearing her wooden Dr. Scholl's sandals and Peter with his cowboy boots. They passed my table. So I waited for a bit, then crawled out from under the table and made a beeline on all fours toward the swinging doors that led to the kitchen. Just as I was crawling along in that direction, so help me God, my waitress came out of the kitchen carrying my steak dish on her tray and seeing me on all fours asked, You don't want your steak, honey? I said no and crawled into the kitchen where the cooks and others in their white outfits looked quite alarmed to see a woman crawling on all fours. I got up, summoned as much dignity as I could, went out the back door, found my car, and drove away. Driving to the set the next morning with Peter, I asked him where he ate dinner the night before. He mumbled something about going out to a restaurant. I told him I had been sitting at that very same restaurant when he came in with Sybil, and he looked at me with horror. Oh my God, I sent her in first to make sure you weren't in there. So I was left to wonder if Sybil had seen me and brazenly brought Peter in with her, or if she couldn't even do the simplest things in life like looking for the wife in a dark restaurant in windblown Wichita Falls, Texas. About 30 years after these events, Sybil Shepard published her autobiography, 
And though she is no kinder in her writing about Polly than Polly was in her own writing about Sybil, Shepard does put the affair into context. At age 20, she was, she writes, mischievous and recklessly self-absorbed. Polly felt that she had missed the 60s because she and Peter had spent that decade obsessed with the films and directors of the previous generation. But Sybil hadn't missed the 60s. In fact, she had come of age in lockstep with that decade's increasing sexual libertinism. Sybil was also reading the cornerstone texts of the women's movement on set. Kate Millett's Sexual Politics, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex. Too young and reckless to think about the consequences of her actions, with a head full of barely digested feminist theory, Sybil, as she later wrote, I knew the affair was wrong, but I rationalized it by thinking that I hadn't exchanged any vows with Polly, that I was only doing what men have been doing for eons, taking their pleasure wherever they find it. She believed that marriage was an old-fashioned institution. And even if she wasn't exactly committing adultery as part of a conscious political action to burn it all down, she would remain consistent in her resistance to monogamy. She had affairs throughout her and Peter's eight-year relationship, including with Elvis Presley. The last picture show finished shooting on Christmas Eve... 1970. Sybil went home to Memphis and then to her New York apartment. Peter and Polly had made a plan to spend the holiday with their daughters and Peter's recently widowed mother in Scottsdale. I looked into my mother-in-law's eyes and saw her pain and confusion. She was, after all, Peter's mother. And I realized that she would side with Peter in whatever direction he might go. Any chance of saving the marriage had died with my father-in-law. Something broke inside me when I looked at her. I had really loved, and still did love her, and I knew, because I was a mother myself, that I would lose her, as well as Peter. I do remember that Herma tried to make light of the affair with Sybil. She said Peter had simply come across a milkmaid, and that it would wear off. Peter was planning to edit the movie in Los Angeles, and while in Scottsdale, he and Polly decided that he would move back into the Satakoy house with her and the kids, and they would try to make it work. But immediately, Polly sensed that his heart was not in it, and he wasn't physically there when she needed him. Peter was gone all day and late into the night working, I thought, on the movie— when I took the children to the supermarket with my hair a mess and wearing sweats, I would be overwhelmed by the problem of dealing with the sheer bulk of two small children. Sashi had to be in the market basket because she was only a baby, and of course Antonia had to be in the basket too. So where to put the groceries? I tried pushing two baskets along the aisles, but that doesn't work. So I delicately tried to put the perishables, like eggs and fruits and so on, in with Sashi, who was too small to crush them and put the cans and meats in with Antonia. Going through the checkout line, Antonia would be begging me for the candy that the supermarket puts in the line while you're waiting for checkout, knowing that your children will want everything there. 
I remember snarling no at Antonia and putting back the Butterfinger bar that she was clutching to her chest, my face twisted with impatience. Just then, on a rack at the cash register, was a fashion magazine with a large photo of Sybil on the cover looking beautiful. I had to laugh. It was too awful. I was a raging, incompetent, befuddled mother, and she was a goddess. What could I do? I couldn't even go to the supermarket and forget about it. One night, it was raining hard outside, and Antonia started vomiting, and she had a temperature of 102 degrees. I was worried and called the pediatrician, who prescribed an anti-vomiting medicine for her and told me that he would call in the prescription to a drugstore quite far away from us, which was open all night. I would have to drive over there in the rain. I realized I couldn't just leave my children alone in the house while I was gone. I would have to take my vomiting child and the baby with me in the car to go and get the medicine. I needed help. So I called Peter in the cutting room and was told that he wasn't there. I became obsessed with the idea that Sybil was probably in from New York and he was making love to her in some hotel room while I was home with our sick baby. I was furious. I took Antonia and Sashi out into the rainy night, knowing I was exposing Sashi to Antonia's flu, drove to the pharmacy and got the prescription. Antonia and Sashi were both crying. It was awful. I put Antonia all wet into her car seat and Sashi next to me in the front and drove home. As I drove through the rain-slicked and empty streets in the San Fernando Valley, I decided that the situation was impossible. I was alone in the world. My mother was dead, so was my father, and all our fancy friends who were famous were not the type of friends I could call in the middle of the night to babysit my children while I went to get a prescription. Peter was with Sybil. All of a sudden, I realized what my future life would be constantly waiting for Peter and him never being there for emergencies. I decided it would be better to be alone than waiting and being disappointed and enraged over Peter's absence. I gave the anti-vomiting medication to Antonia and she stopped vomiting. I put her down to sleep and again called Peter at the editing room. By this time it was one or two in the morning. He was there. Without explaining myself to him, I demanded that he come home and get his clothes and get out of the house. Peter came home. It was still raining. I sat on the bed in our Satakoy Street bedroom and watched Peter pull together a few clothes and put them in a suitcase. I knew this was a big, big decision, and I thought to myself, am I really doing this? I felt brave and scared at the same time. But I didn't want to be a bitter, jealous woman. Peter finished packing and walked to the doorway of our bedroom, turned and said to me tearfully, Just remember, you did this to us. He was gone. I was trying to laugh about his blaming the whole thing on me. My life was shifting and changing before my very eyes, and I had no control over it. I think that's why I threw him out, to exercise some control. Is this what I wanted? To be alone? No. I think I was trying to force Peter to see the gravity of the situation, to hear me, and give Sybil up for the children and me. I was alone. No friends who weren't famous. 
No friends my age. No one. I couldn't stop crying. Antonia watched me, frightened. She'd never seen me this way. One day, shortly after Peter left, Polly got a call from John Ford's daughter, Barbara, saying that her father wanted Polly to come over to their house so he could talk to her about Peter and Sybil. A uniformed maid gestured for me to go up the circular staircase, and I did, slowly. As I climbed the stairs, I noticed scrape marks on the risers and against the curving wall. The place was dirty, and the master and mistress of the house were literally too blind to see what was going on. As I got near to the top of the landing, Barbara Ford fluttered out from the bedroom door closest to the stairs. She was barefoot and wearing a flimsy nightgown, even though it was nearly four in the afternoon. She was not sober. She was weaving side to side as she said to me, My father fell in love with Catherine Hepburn, but he never left us because he loved me so much. She gestured towards Ford's bedroom as she stumbled back into hers. I noticed Mary Ford was in her bed in her room. Everyone in the house was in bed, and it was four in the afternoon. Ford was sitting on a high, spartan bed, a thin sheet and blankets covering his legs and lap, wearing a stained pajama top. He was chewing on a lit cigar, and he had on his eye patch and was holding the book he was reading literally inches from his eye. He looked over his book at me as I came in. He waved me to a chair and chewed on his cigar. Ashes fell. There was no small talk, no chit-chat. I sat down, and he fixed his one eye on me and said, I heard about what happened. I nodded and said, Well, it's an occupational hazard of the job. Ford said, Well, I never did it. He vigorously shook the blanket that had cigar ashes all over it, and I could see that he was not wearing pajama bottoms. He was naked and seemed to get a kick out of letting me get a glimpse of his equipment. All of it. Ford threw his arms up in the air in a dramatic gesture and said gruffly, I'll tell you what, I'll move in with you. I laughed. But it was amazing that he was the only one who said anything that made me feel even remotely better. He would move in with me. I wanted to cry. But I also wanted to be brave like the women in his westerns who clutched their aprons as their men went off to war. The visit to Ford was a tonic for me, but it also afforded me a look at what life could be if you were married to a great director. Mary and John Ford lived in separate rooms. Their daughter was not well, and they had little to do with Ford's son, who apparently was a disappointment to Ford. The great house, which was not very well kept up, was not a happy place at all. I thought, if this is what happens when you hold on to a director... I don't want it. I don't want to be a director's wife and live this sad and alcoholic life. Many people who knew Polly lament her split from Peter Bogdanovich as a tragedy. Not in the sense that she lost the love of her life, so much as that they both lost their ideal creative partner. Nancy Griffin, who was a journalist in the 80s and 90s, interviewed Polly and then befriended her. For her, the loss of Peter 
was not just the loss of a spouse and a lover. I think she missed being in a creative power relationship with somebody where where she could channel all of her energy and talents. In a way, it worked in that he was the egotist between them, and she could have kept serving him if he hadn't run off with Sybil Shepherd and other women. She would have been happy to be the brains behind the powerful man or however you want to put it, I think. She just loved making movies and telling stories, and she would have let him have all the glory. You see, they could feed off each other. This is Polly's college friend, Peggy Steffens. It was a really good working relationship because in the early years, he absolutely idolized Polly because she was such a creative person. It was, I mean, she did think that this would go on. And she never got over Peter. She could see what kind of person he was. But she never got over that he left. Some marriages, when they end, fully end, clean and simple. But when two people share young children, they're going to stay in one another's lives for a long time. And when they split up on the verge of releasing a film on which they collaborated, which then becomes the surprise hit of the year and one of the defining movies of a decade... Chances are, the break is not going to be so clean. Next week, we will talk about how Polly adjusted to living without Peter, while still working with Peter on two more films which became box office hits, and, eventually, beloved classics. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was produced, written, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. Special thanks to our special guests. This episode featured Maggie Siff as the voice of Polly Platt, Bill Sage as the voice of Larry McMurtry, and Megan Lee as the voice of Sybil Shepherd. Today's episode included excerpts from interviews with Frank Marshall, Jules Fisher, Toby Rafelson, Peggy Steffens, and Nancy Griffin. Special thanks to them and everyone else who took the time to talk about Polly Platt with us. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Brendan Whalen is in charge of our social media and does additional research assistance. Additional research assistance and transcription by Kristen Sales and Wiley Wiggins. Our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. 
Today's episode was produced by Tomika Weatherspoon and edited by Brendan Burns. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Josephine Martirana. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com. There you'll find show notes, which include all of our sources, information about music, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. And you can support the show on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or buy merch for our show at podswag.com slash remember. Keep up with all of our episodes by subscribing on Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.